Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally, voidware prohibited, must be 18 or older to enter, no purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Well, hello there, and welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. My name is Joy Rios, and this is a special recap episode. We had the opportunity to attend the inaugural SOAR conference in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, in support of advancing women in health IT, something near and dear to our hearts. I was lucky enough to interview each of the speakers to showcase highlights from each of their presentations. We have included each of the speakers' contact information in the show notes, so be sure to give them a follow. And we're really excited to see what grows from this awesome community of women empowering each other. All right, without further ado, let's get to it. Enjoy! Hi there, Victoria Peltier. I'm managing director at Accenture, as well as a board member on multiple companies and a keynote speaker. Thank you so much for joining us. It was really great to hear your talk. Thanks for doing the keynote speak speaker today at the SOAR conference. One of the things that came up was the conversation around, well, the word eminence and the importance of your personal brand. So for anybody who's not here experiencing this conference, can we share with them the message that you were sharing? Yeah, absolutely. I'm a huge believer in the importance of personal brand, particularly from a professional career perspective, and that your brand is more than what some companies refer to as your eminence. So the eminence is the subject matter expertise for which you are known or the industry you have experience in, but it's broader than that, recognizing that people do business with people they like, they trust, and they want to do business with. So building a brand is about who you are as a whole person and how you show up. I use the phrase and I say that you know, you're the CEO of BrandU. And in recognizing that people do business with people they like and trust, it's about and recognizing there's a need to build a, a differentiator between you and someone else. So your brand is the um, subject matter expertise for which you're known for. It's who you are as an individual, your values, integrity, ethics, who you are as a leader and how you show up. And I also believe it's things like your passions and interests and how do you bring those forward and build connection with others. You said something at the end of your talk about not wanting to be the kind of leader that somebody fears and instead being the kind of leader that somebody wants to follow. And that brings up for me the idea that be a pleasure to work with. It's a really important thing, especially if you get really excited or overly like quick, right? Emotion. But that's not necessarily a bad thing, but more than anything, people, you want people to want to work with you. 
So can we talk about, you know, the difference between the type of leadership that people are afraid of versus like, well, happy to follow you into the fire? Right. You know, as I shared, I had some lessons to learn in this area and that my nickname was the Iron Maiden because I was you know, a strong performer, but made some really tough business decisions, but I didn't build these trusted relationships with others. And so people feared me, whereas my goal and objective then became to have people follow me. But to do that, people needed to understand that I had deep care and compassion for them for their success within the organization and and hopefully in their long-term careers as well. So that meant I needed to invest a significant amount of time in understanding their lived experience. How did they show up at the workplace? What were their goals and objectives? And also marrying that with what I could see as it related to their skills and performance and opportunity and ultimately have have their back. I think that's a, a big differentiator in terms of, you know, people who are going to want to follow you. They do that because they understand that not only is there this care and compassion for them, but that you're there to, as I said, sort of take the take the bullets with the team. Yeah. So what do you mean by that? I mean if so, like you have led several teams, I imagine. Can we talk about like can you give an example of something like that that has happened in your career? Yeah, multiple times. So I've been an executive for 20, 20 plus years and as you said, leading in large teams. And, you know, some prime examples of that, you know, there would be one in particular I can think of, a very large scale implementation that went wrong for a multitude of reasons. My team's accountability and others were the clients we were implementing it for. Some of it was just the requirements they had. But ultimately, when things turned to red in the organization and I had to sit in front of our CEO, I took accountability. There was no naming names for anyone on the team. So I'm, if you ask my team, they'll tell you I'm tough, but I'm fair. So I set very high bar in terms of performance and the deliverables and commitments we make to our clients and I'll manage their performance, but that's between them and myself. And if I need to move them out of the organization, I will. But when it comes time to sitting in front of a client or sitting in front of our senior executives, it's me who's going to take accountability and ownership for that. I love that. And then the other thing I wanted, and it's been a personal journey for me too, the understanding of boundaries. Mm. <laughs> because I think to your point earlier, like we all want to do it all. We all want to have it all, but you can't always do it all at the same time. Can you speak to your, like some of a couple boundaries that have made a difference in your life? Yeah, for sure. So I um I learned I'm a fit- fitness fanatic is a great example for me in terms of creating these boundaries. And at some point, as a massive road warrior, I would do the 6 a.m. flight out, and I'm like, no, forget it. Like I would not be able to work out. So I've started to change the way my travel patterns as a result. But I also block my calendar every day so that before 9 a.m., no one can book me for a call. If they do, it's by exception, and I've got awareness around it. But the other it otherwise appears as though I'm blocked, so I can get up and I can work out every day. Perfect. That's great. What is your activity of choice? Weight training now, although I'm, I used to play hockey as well, but uh, now I just work out six days a week doing predominantly weight training. Okay. Me too. Well, five, <laughs> but uh, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your expertise and sharing your story. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Hi, I'm Rebecca Woods. I am the founder of Bluebird Tech Solutions. We are a IT consultancy company, and I'm also the founder of Bluebird Leaders, a nonprofit creating a community for women in health IT. 
I love it. It is uh, something I'm uh, near and dear to my heart. Can we talk about what efforts you are making to help advance women in health IT? Well, for, to start, we're all here today at the SOAR conference, our first conference in person today, all day, and tomorrow, half day, an executive session. We also will be launching our membership program at the end of this month and then coming very soon our mentorship program to help younger, you know, leaders rise up and Can we talk about that? Yeah. So what is it going to so what who is the ideal candidate to join the mentorship program? Gosh, it could really be any woman, right? Okay. It could even be an executive and there's other executives mentoring her to her role that she wants to be when she grows up. It could be college students or grad students and just really helping them and guide them down the path and not go over the same bumps that we have in the past. And is it a matter of like one-to-one matchmaking or a one-to-many? It'll be a little bit of both. So we'll have a one-to-one um, and that will be you know over a course of a period of time. But also during that time, there will be specialty guests that come in and talk about what their area of focus. So we might have a lawyer come in and talk about how she's impacting women and guiding them in her role or a CFO, other CIOs. I even have male CIOs that have want, have already jumped on board to mentor uh, younger females. And so it'll be a mix of one-to-one and then these specialty programs throughout the mentorship. And do you think it'll be in person or online or a combo? It'll be online. That okay. will be online, but I also foresee there being some combo of this extending with our conference extending next year as well. And, and definitely having them be there in person is where they're going to get all that networking done, right? That's how we've gotten to where we are today. Yeah. One of the things, okay, we just came off of a panel and kind of touching on some of the aspects that we we touched on. Can we talk about resiliency? Can we talk about how we build up resiliency <laughs> yeah. over time? Yeah, I just think it's, you know, something that you kind of like learn, right? But it's it's uh it it hurts at first, right? Getting, you know, the fear of failure or getting told something negative, you know, when I was in my 20s, you might like, you know, really beat yourself up about it. But then as you grow, I think it's um, changing that mindset to maybe 24 hours, you can be upset, right? But again, changing that mindset so that it's how can we make this and turn around to something positive and learning from your mistakes or your failures. And I think that's how leaders become great leaders in get the roles that they, you know, are in. Can you talk a little bit about being a Skittle? Can I talk about being a Skittle? Yeah. Sure. Over my years, I've realized that it's okay to show that you're vulnerable. And I also think it's okay to show that to the younger generation. They need to see that. They don't need to see that I'm, or other leaders, right? And have this tough like skin. They, they need to show that we have compassion and in everything that we do. Absolutely. Well, you have been a good example of somebody who is lifting as they climb. So Thanks. thank Thanks. you for everything that you're doing. Thanks, Joy. My name is Kristen and I work within the healthcare industry, mainly primarily within the home-based services area. And that's where I spent the majority of my 20 years experience. I have climbed the ladder from the lowest levels from a non-clinical caregiver to CEO positions and now the CMO of a very large organization, HCP, and um, also the founder of Ideal for healthcare, which is focused on upward mobility and visibility for women. 
Fantastic. It's very nice to meet you. And it was great to be on that panel with you that we just finished. Yeah. For those who were not able to be here in person, can let's talk about some of the things you discussed, which were measuring, like measuring diversity, equity, and inclusion. Can you kind of give us a recap of what we had talked about? Yeah. So one of the reasons that I chose to work for the company that I work for is because it's a data-based company that drives insights and action. And it does that through measuring from a survey perspective of how you're doing from an organizational. Now, speaking more from a diversity perspective, measuring those efforts through consistent surveys, doing the analysis, but not staying stuck in the paralysis and creating actionable change is what's going to help you move the needle. Not all organizations are, well, there's not any organization that is ever going to be perfect from a diversity perspective. It's always going to be a work in progress, but that work in progress only comes from data measurement and from insights and surveying and seeing how how can I impact change and also feet on the ground. Can you share some of the questions that are in those surveys? Yeah. So some of the questions from an organizational perspective that you would want to measure by, and I, again, partnered with a consulting group that is very focused in on DEIB efforts called Advanced to define these out, but it is around how, what are, do you have a program right now that's in place? What are the pieces that are effective that are working from an organizational perspective? What does it, your leadership team what is it made up of? And, you know, really monitoring those. I think those are some of the few questions that are within that survey, but it's a very detailed survey that's a uh, for organizations to dive into. How would you measure effectiveness? So that is a very soft touch data point because it's very much so from the perception of the person that's taking it. But I think that's the key is that reading the comments and the feedback that come from some of the open text questions there is what's going to help you move the needle and see how am I impacting this change and how can I how can I drive to more? And also understanding geographically where these people live and what kind of change are you really truly going to be able to impact and how are you going to be able to make that needle move it really goes back to education on the reasoning behind some of these ma- some of these movements and matters within an organization well really getting to the why and that really comes I mean, those are big questions. Mm -hmm. So when you think about those big questions from a leadership team, how does it, if at all, take away from the actual mission and vision of an organization or doesn't it? Well, you don't really have a mission and vision of an organization if you don't have the right people at the table, right? Mm -hmm. So it just goes back to, you can think that you're going to move a needle and impact change from an organizational perspective all you want, but if you don't have a diversified set of people surrounding you, then you're only going to be serving one aspect of the market. And when you look at healthcare as a whole, over 70% is women whenever you look at it holistically. In my segment of the industry, it's actually higher, 85% are women. But then from a leadership perspective, that number is um, it's pretty pretty sad. And then if you look from a diversity, from a holistic perspective, it, it's even more sad. So how do you make that change? And if you compound all of those things with the pandemic happening and retention and recruitment efforts into the healthcare industry struggling, you start to see that you're really you're losing women is a majority. And the only way to create and impact that change is again who's around you and monitoring who's around you and who's at at your table. So what would be your go-to advice for advancing women in health IT specifically? I think the first thing is um, join Bluebird Leaders. 
That would be my first go-to because this entire nonprofit is focused in on women in IT and providing resources and mentorship with that. If you happen to be outside of the IT area and you're like, but I, I, me too, I want some help. There are other amazing nonprofits that are out there, one of which I run, but then there's other ones that are even here that I've learned about since being at this conference. And I think find your people, find your tribe and don't give up and surround yourself with people that are going to help amplify you because scarcity mindset shouldn't exist when it comes to women at the table. And it's our job as women leaders to help remove that scarcity mindset and build an infinite table for every woman that wants to rise. I love that. Thank you very much for sharing. Thank you so much. Stacey DiStefano, I'm the CEO and founder of Consulting for Human Services, a mental health clinician by training, um, had many roles in multi-state organizations on the nonprofit side, uh, chief operating officer, chief strategy officer, and then always had some side consulting. And that really grew through the pandemic. So found a need to open our consulting firm and we grew from one person to 20. So very happy to be uh, serving the industry in that role. Congratulations. That's a big shift. Thank you. Yeah, it was. It was. You know, so one of the things that we just talked about, we just finished a panel around looking at who has a seat at the table. And so being in a position of leadership, how do you manage or really take into consideration the voices that are at the table that you're working at and possibly the missing voices? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think I'm able to better impact that from the role of management consultant right now. I work with many C-suite organizations on the nonprofit and for-profit side, and they're typically open to hearing from an outside lens what their table looks like and who needs to be there. So I've had more success in consulting, being able to impact and, and grow diversity and maybe point out some of the mid-level leadership folks who are ready to take a leap with some support. So that's been really rewarding. But I do think sometimes it takes an outside lens. I'm, I'm interested to hear how open folks have been and maybe if you can share any examples of a change that's been able to impact. Yeah, absolutely. So in working on the nonprofit side, and these are larger, you know, 100 million, 200 million and up organizations, so not a small mom and pop style, but folks tend to promote people that they're comfortable with, that they know, that they have some familiarity to. So you end up having like-minded teams unless there's a real intentional intervention to shake that up. So I have been able to work with teams at mid-level and point out some folks who feel really ready and who have you know raised their hands and sort of volunteered for some professional growth. And I think when you look at the different sections of experience and different cultures and different genders and different ages, for CEOs who are willing, it's a real ripe opportunity to grow some diversity organically from the organization. I love that. Another uh, uh, topic we t- discussed was our relationship with failure. Mm. Uh, can we touch on that? For a yeah, bit? absolutely. I was commenting. We heard a great uh, panel from Sarah Blakely, the founder of Spanx recently, and she said that growing up, her dad at dinner time would ask all the kids at the table, what did you fail at today? And I thought that was an amazing reframe to turn failure into opportunity, right? Most of us are socialized to say, what did you do well? You know, did you get an A today? But we're not socialized to talk about all failures. So I really am going to put that more in practice. Um, And I love that idea of normalizing failure as a stepping stone to success. Absolutely. Thank you very much. This has been great. Oh, my pleasure. Great to be with you. My pleasure. I'm Kat McDavid. I'm the Chief Strategy Officer and Founder of Incena. We're a go-to-market consultancy for the health tech sector. And I'm also the CEO of the Zoria Foundation, which is a nonprofit dedicated to supporting women in healthcare. All right. And you just gave a great 
talk about making friends with your problem. And I like the idea of slumber parties. Oh right? my gosh, I love, <laughs> yes. We should snuggle with our problems. Yeah. That's what, cuddle. I, that's what I want you to talk about. What does that mean? If you're wanting to like invite your problem over for a slumber party and really get to know it, what do you mean when you say that? Right. So how do I start with this? That's like a big question about why you'd want to invite them over for a slumber party. So like I was just like I was just talking about with that presentation, there are a lot of companies out there that they have a cool idea to make something a little easier, but they don't understand the problem enough that they're trying to solve to understand how to build a product that's meaningful and that not only solves a little bit of that problem, but will sell, right? And people are allergic to the word sell and sales, but you need to sell something in order to get in and market and to make a difference. So when I say, you know, have a slumber party with your problem, really intimately understand how big of a problem that is, right? So I was making fun of PDFs and fax machines, and I was making the joke that we should really spend a lot of time with the fax machine that we all love to trash talk. There's a party at Health from Credo, I think is how the company's uh, pronounced. And they are having a party called Get Smashed with Credo. And the point of the party is, not the point, the point is to hang out, I'm sure, is to, I think we're actually going to take sledgehammers and break fax machines. Like, I think that's part of, that was in the invite. Like in office space? I don't know. I'm excited. I'm going to go to see what happens. But everybody talks trash about the fax machine. But that fax machine is solving a problem that is so big And it is so integrated into workflows that we should actually study it instead of trying to beat it up. Right. And there are a lot of companies out there that they solve a part of the problem. They think they understand the problem. They solve a part of it. And it's not enough. And their thing doesn't sell. Yeah. Right. So... Spend a lot of time with it. Well, I think that what, to your point, a lot of people fall in love with their product, mm-hmm. right? You spend a mm-hmm. lot, you're going to have a slumber party with your product, spend a lot of time with your, with that, whatever it is, you know, hard, something tangible or a service or whatnot. Yep. But if you get on the other side of it, that's the most important thing. That's the most important thing. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it's a real thing. And I had a, I had a quote from a good friend, Jeff Luce, and I, I mentioned he's the VP of behavioral health at Optum. And this dude's got a massive multi-billion dollar budget. And what he always took, because I try to make him buy stuff all the time. I'm like, oh, look at my new client. They do amazing things. And he always says, and I, I want to quote him accurately, Kat, they are so in love with their product that they forget about the problem. Yeah. And I think that is true of very many companies in our space. Well, this is great advice. I think encouraging people to have slumber parties in and of itself is a oh, great yeah. idea. Across the board, yeah, not just with your board. problems. <laughs> You know, not just problems. Yes. Well, and for everybody who wasn't here to enjoy this conference itself and to hear you speak, thank you for sharing your message. Thank you for having me. I am Kate Weatherby and I am the founder of Ethnicate. I believe in promoting women in technology and promoting better cultures in the technology field. That's a really huge topic, especially considering bias that gets built into technology. Is that part of your conversation? It is. You know, we spend a lot of time talking about, you know, facial recognition, right? If you think about all the problems that we go into with facial recognition and algorithms are built actually off of, you know, the actor studio, and so you, you're like, wow, it doesn't recognize African-American. It doesn't recognize Asian. Hmm. Well, maybe we're not well diverse in all of our different areas. And so there are so many different places that we can look at better ways to incorporate inclusion and access just into our daily lives. I always say, which people like or don't like, every culture is not for everyone. Sure. So your culture of your organization can be your culture. 
but that doesn't mean everybody wants to work there. And that's okay. But the, the times we run into problems is when we look, you know, you hire marketers, right? Mm-hmm. To talk about how amazing this place is and how everybody wants to be here and look at how inclusive we are. And then maybe you're not as inclusive as you thought you were, but people don't find that out until they get there, mm-hmm. right? And so some of it is not really about even telling people that their culture is wrong. It just may not be right for everyone. Okay, but I pretty the name of your talk was around like, the futures of EHR, right? So when we're t- when when we bring that idea into the future of EHR, what is the future of EHR that you would anticipate or look for? Like what changes need to be made? And I know that that's subjective. Well, and again, yes, everything that I say is just me randomly pontificating incoherently, mostly. But we need electron. We need people to feel like the healthcare community supports them. The social determinants of health and you know economic bias, racial bias, gender bias. You know, I gave a I gave a talk in there about how we have a lot of areas where and I mean it, it was much more prevalent, you know, 10 years ago when electronic health records were really coming out, but a lot of trans people don't want people to know mm-hmm. that they were trans because they weren't getting the care that they thought that they should get. But okay, can we stop there even just for a second because thinking about technology, like when I think of what's in an EHR, it does a lot of the gender selections are male, female, unknown. and or unknown. Mm-hmm. And so even just having a conversation with for the trans community, like there's a ton of other options that could be there and that's not built in. Right. Although over the last few years, those have been added, some more than others. But the issue really gets into, so electronic health records have built out Electronic health records have built out. They've done a lot more in ways of, of holding data, understanding longitudinal healthcare. Where we get into a lot of the issues is then sharing that data. So when you think about a longitudinal healthcare, you want a care record that's going to follow a person throughout their entire life. And big picture, all Pollyanna, that sounds awesome, right? Like, yay, look, I have, you know, especially think about hemophilia, hemophilia, yeah, hemophiliac, that's a million dollar disease annually. You know, so just imagine that it follows you around, you don't have to worry. The problem is, is that if you are someone who already feels marginalized and you have taken the time to create a safe space with your provider, and then somehow that information gets shared out more broadly, mm-hmm. you do not feel that you are in control of your information. And then there are privacy concerns that go into that. So, you know, the future of electronic health records are really how do we create the opportunity for people to understand what it is they do and do not want to share with other providers in their lives. We need to create a safe space where people can talk and get help and feel like they have control. And also, I think, adjust our technology to be in such a way that it can accommodate that type of change. Yes. 
Kate, thank you so much for bringing the tough conversation because it is something I'm sure that lands with people that it's like, hey, that feels pretty controversial. But you know what? Like we live in a controversial world. Like we have to tackle difficult conversations and build it into our technology. We need to address nuance. So thank you very much for sharing. Thank you. My name is Dr. Guinevere Stacio. Um, most people call me Gwen and I am a money and a business coach. I help female entrepreneurs stand in their power and master their money so that they can do epic shit. Okay. And what what is the importance of like having good energy, for mm. example? So it's it's everything. Energy is everything. I went through a lot of life not understanding that energy was something that like I needed to embody. I just checked a lot of boxes and followed a plan. And then when I discovered that like energy is so individual and it really matters how we hold ourselves and how we love ourselves, that that's like a different frequency than how I had been functioning before. So it really is just bringing the frequency up of ourselves so that we can better influence the world and change the frequency of everyone else. So I have my own personal story, but I don't want to monopolize, but, but I'm happy to share. Yeah, but at I love the same your time, I also want to hear like, what do you feel like is like the difference between before learning about your personal power mm-hmm. and after, like what has mm-hmm. been the shift with either how people engage with you or how you engage with the world? Maybe. Gosh, even in just the past year, I have noticed that people want to have conversations with me. Like before I would just head down, like I'm thinking about the airport, right? Like you walk through the airport, your head's down, you're like not making eye contact with anyone. You don't want to engage in conversation because then it means you have to talk. But now because I've embodied my personal power, because I embody my energy, I walk through the world with my head up and I I want to engage with people and people, I don't even have to say anything. People just start talking to me. And now I know that like not be, that might not be like your first, why should I embody my energy? Oh, so people can talk to me. No, but it's like connection. Sure. If we don't have connection with people, we don't have anything. Well, and it also translates into work, right? Yeah. If people want to work with you, right? that is an important piece. Yeah. They're not going to hire Gwen with her head down, like not making eye contact. No. Yeah. So I'll, if you don't mind, yeah, I'll share my share. personal yeah, story. Yeah. So I went through a divorce and I moved to another country. I live in Mexico now. Oh and it all happened literally timing of March, 2020. Basically leap day of 2020 oh my was my first day in my new place. <laughs> okay. And so I was already anticipating a big life change. I knew that that was in my future. Mm-hmm. However, I was not anticipating the lockdown, right? Mm-hmm. And being alone with myself oh my for five months before... And he was like really engaging with people again. And I bring this up because my my relationship with energy totally shifted because I became so acutely aware that the energy in my home was created 100% from me. There were four walls Mm -hmm. and me. And Mm -hmm. so if it felt that it was uncomfortable and unhappy or an angry or sad place, it was because... I made it that you way. Were the common denominator. I was the common denominator. And <laughs> yeah. like and of course I had things to deal with and a shift that I needed to go through to face myself and all of the all of that stuff. Yes. But it really when I gave myself the permission to do that, and obviously like the timing of it like really gave me plenty of time to Seriously. sit and face myself. <laughs> yes. But the energy shifted and be like, okay, well, how can why am I feeling this way? How can I change my thoughts if that is what is affecting you know, what thought am I thinking over and over again that is affecting my energy yeah. this way? And how can I get to the root of that? And then now take a little bit more responsibility of like, I want to create 
a happy energy or a place that people either that I want to be, let yeah. alone whether I want other people right. to be there that I want to be mm. in my own space. Yes. And there's a lot of power in understanding like the energy you bring to the table. Literally. Yeah. yeah. And seeing how people engage with you. And mm-hmm. it's been a game changer. My life has totally shifted in the last totally. three years. I was just, I don't know who said this for the very first time, but everyone said it and repeated it over again. How you do anything is how you do everything. Absolutely. Right. So it's like how you lead yourself how you be the energy is how everyone else is going to react to you and also how you create your world. Right. So that's like a huge mind shift for me. It also came for me, the realization of, well, living a little bit off script, like here's the things that you're supposed to do. What yeah. society teaches us, which right. is a little bit your, your conversation and the talk today of like, yeah. okay, what is it that we are told our life is supposed to look like? And then what happens when that's not, when it doesn't feel right. Or that what happens when you follow it and you're like, well, now, now what? what? Yeah. <laughs> or if no. just, in my in my experience, if, if just like a surprise happens in your life and like, guess what? Things aren't going as you planned. Yeah. So now you have to come up with a brand new plan. <laughs> yeah, right? So yeah, so to speak on your like, when you said you got divorced and there's a whole new change. Like, yeah, I, I was like, listen, I went to school. I got the grades. I did the A's. I got married. I got a dog. I bought a house. Like I did all the things, but I'm not happy. Yeah. So that we become the common denominator, we have to change. We have to shift our energy to create what we want to create. So, what is it that makes you happy now? Mm, helping, <laughs> helping women step into their power, helping them realize that no one's coming to save us, and that it's up to us to really take a stance and like put ourselves out into the world, and helping them see that they were given a mission and a message and they wouldn't have been given that unless they were meant to lead with it. So, And if somebody wanted to find you, work with you or be inspired by you, where would mm. you point them? So I'm mostly on Instagram. You mm. can find me by my first name, dot last name. So Guinevere.Stacio on Instagram and I would love a message. Okay, fantastic. Thank yeah. you so much for your time. Thank you. And thank you for sharing your energy. It's been great. Thank you. That means so much. Hi, my name is Ed. I'm lucky to be married to Dr. Simran. And I serve as a CEO of Divergent and have served in healthcare for about 30 years. Yes, we have met before. It is nice to see you again, Ed. Yeah, I know. This is like a thrill. Like I'm, I'm with a celebrity. Well, no. And technically, you are the first man on the podcast. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. This like, is, is like a huge deal. This is hu- really huge. Thank <laughs> you. Wow. I'm very, yes, very privileged and honored. Well, I want to commend you both because you tackled a big topic today, which is kind of the differences between male and female leadership in general. And let's talk about it. I mean, what are there? some of the things that you brought up were things that men wish that women would know and things women wish that men would know. So, Not everybody got to be in that room to hear you talk about it. So can we do a little bit of recap on that? Yeah, for sure. We'd love to. All right. Let's start with you, Ed. Yeah. So, you know, it was based on research and then surveys. We did, I would call them informal surveys, but of a couple hundred people, we just asked them, you know, we we realize it's a generality, male versus female, and there's a wide spectrum. But given that, just ask, you know, the males, what do they wish women leaders knew? So a couple things, you know, one was, that we're emotional too, but we may not show it as much as perhaps a female might. Again, these are all generalities. And so understand that we're not stoic and we're not like impervious to understanding or being empathetic. It's just we may not show it in the same way. So that was something that males wanted female leaders to know. And also that 
we really do care about inequity and that we want to know and to the extent that we can, depending on our organizations, our positions, taking being advocates for equity. So finding out, is there really a, a pay, a gender pay gap? And if so, we're going to help lead the charge to close it. So we're very interested in that. So it's not like we're ignorant of the issue and not doing anything. Uh, we, we are. And I think perhaps maybe a last one. I think we covered like 10. It was great with the audience, right? They gave a lot of other examples. I think another one might be that we, while we're not females ourselves and can never replicate that experience, that we do have a little bit of an understanding, right? Sometimes people think, oh, you have no, you don't understand, you have no idea, but we do. And we gain that different ways, some mostly healthy ways, but perhaps some unhealthy ways. But on the healthier side, like whether it was a mom, daughters, sisters, I have all that. I had a great mom, I have great sisters, I have awesome daughters, awesome wife. And so I've really learned to be a little bit empathetic. Yeah, empathy seems to be one of those things that, well, it's hard to teach, right? right. And it's hard for people to, to, you don't just wake up and have it. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a practice. It is a practice. Yeah. So can you tell us, well, what do women leaders wish that, no, wish that they, that men knew about women? I think one of the things Ed mentioned is the uh, mentoring. And I feel like, his practice before was in some organization also, you know, they only want female mentoring female. And I think that it should be co-ed. I think male should be able to mentor a female. And uh, somehow I don't know where that started from. And I don't think it should be like that. I think that's a really good point, actually, because it was some, like, I guess maybe you might think that it would just be natural that a woman wants to be led or taught by another woman and same for men. But Ed, you brought up the point that somebody told you that doesn't feel fair. Right. Right. Yeah. That's how I learned it. I adopted that practice. I have to admit, and I'll never forget the person I can see her now. And she came and she was like, Hey, that's not right. Why should, you know, my peers, male peers have access to you and learn from you and develop this relationship with you. And I can't do it because I'm a female. That's wrong. And I was like, Absolutely right. Completely changed my practice. Especially when you're talking about access. I mean, access to you as a leader. I think that that's like a really important point. Yeah, I think myself, a male, let's say I worked at Optum where there's a female, oh, let's pick, let's say Epic. You have Judy Faulkner, right? If she wouldn't meet with me, if I was one of her, you know, executives because I was a male, but all the females had access, I get pretty mad. Yeah. And so it's, but some, someone had to like tell me. And so that was another one of the things we talked about today was you need to have these frank conversations with your male or female uh, leadership when something's not right. Thank you both for tackling a tough topic. I know that to your point, it's good to be open to hear the feedback. And that means you have to bring up the conversation. So. Yeah, and thanks, Joy, for having us. It's, a, it's honestly a really privilege and, and really appreciate what you do out there. Thank you. Hi, everyone. My name is Liv, also known as Liv Bits. And each week, I make short videos for kids and teachers where I talk about reading, thinking, and life. I am an international keynote speaker and the author of the book, Spark Change, Making Your Mark in the Digital World. Amazing. How long have you been making weekly videos? I've been making weekly videos for seven years. Okay, do you mind if I ask you how old you are? I am 15. Okay, so you've been doing this for a long time. How do you feel about the commitment of that? That's a significant commitment. 
At first, it was a little bit difficult trying to figure out how to balance. I am a very serious ballerina, trying to balance school, dance, and live bits. But after a while, I was able to come up with a really good routine where I'm able to post on social media and be able to document parts of my day without getting too stressed out or too overwhelmed with all of it. And how do you decide what to post? I actually still always run by what I post with my mom. My mom is my biggest mentor when it comes to my social media accounts. I think that when you have a social media account, it's super important that you have what I like to call a mentor tech, someone that you're able to learn from and someone that's able to give you feedback. Okay. A mentor tech. So instead of, it's usually use a mentor text Uh in like in reading and literacy, but I thought of it more as a mentor tech. I love it. It's a little phrase that I coined. Okay, so there is a a big part of your talk was about how kids can teach adults. And I am here for that. I am here for it. Student voice. Yes. Okay, so tell me what what is it that you love to teach adults? I like to teach adults that no matter how young you are, you can always share your story. One of the most common things I come across is I do school visits a lot. And I love being able to work with the students to make their own videos to talk about their passions. A lot of the time, kids can feel like in school, they don't have a voice that matters, that in that classroom setting, it's going to be the teacher talking to the students. You raise your hand, then you can talk. With these types of videos, it's a time where kids are be able to talk about something that they love. One of the very common occurrences I get is they're like, I don't know what to talk about. Should I talk about math? And I'm like, no, talk about something that you could go on and on about for hours. For me, sharks, Minecraft, ballet, some of my biggest passions. And it's a great opportunity for kids to be able to talk about something that they love in school. I mean, that is a huge lesson. And I feel like I'm taking your pep talk right now because I'm just, I have a hard time of getting in front of the camera. It's one thing to be in a podcast, but on a weekly basis to like check in with the world right? That's another thing that happens a lot in schools. It's very sad, but when I get to like fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, the kids don't like to look at themselves. Mm -hmm. They will make a video and they'll say, can I just do a voice memo? Or they post it. I use platforms like Padlet and Flipgrid, which if you didn't know are ones where you can see your video kind of like a feed. So you can see your friend's videos and they're like, oh, my face. Mm -hmm. And luckily both of those resources have filters that they can use like to put something silly on their face or to make their hair red. And that's something that kids always love using. But it was always a mystery to me about why students really did not like looking at their faces when they were looking at a video. And it's something that I'm learning from a little bit because I never had that issue. And I think it's because it's very common that when kids turn 13, they get social media accounts. You can have Instagram, you can have YouTube, you can have whatever you want. You can have Snapchat. You're 13, now you're mature. But really, when I was eight years old and I had my first Instagram account, it started off first just on my mom's and then I got my own and my mom was monitoring everything that I was doing. You're more likely to listen to someone when you're younger than when you're 13. And the biggest person that you're going to want to listen to is a celebrity that's on social media that sometimes isn't the best mentor. Our audience is mostly professional women who work in healthcare and technology. I love the girl power. Yeah. So what, like, what do you, what do you have to share with my audience, with our audience? Since they work with technology, I would like to put out there to always look for more ways to make technology more accessible to kids. I think that kids a lot of them do not know how to use technology for creation and not just for assessment. And I think that if we can teach kids and we can mentor them how to use technology to create, especially around their passions, they can also connect with so many other people. That's 
one of the things that I love the most about social media is that I have been able to connect with so many shark scientists that I would have never been able to meet if I didn't connect with them over social media. And so I got to go behind the scenes at the Georgia Aquarium because of one tweet that I made about how much I loved sharks. And I got to see how they feed the whale sharks and how it's an all women team at the Georgia Aquarium and gave me insight into maybe a career that I would want to do and maybe focus on sharks diet and how we can feed them because the sharks that they were feeding are whale sharks and they are as big as a bus. Yep. So you can imagine having four whale sharks in a tank and how difficult that must be to be able to feed them. And so always finding ways to make technology more accessible to kids And also remembering that kids can teach us and that it's not just adults that can be the teachers, but kids can teach us too. I'm here for it. Thank you so much, Liv. Thank you. to have you. (laughs) Keep reading, keep thinking, and keep watching LibBits for more ideas about your books and your world. Thank you so much, everyone. Thanks so much for having me, Joy. Lauren Frederick, I'm based out of uh, St. Petersburg, Florida, and I am a uh, healthcare executive with a company called Hinge Health. And I've been in the industry for about 17 years. Oh, fantastic. I had no idea. I know. Okay. Most people think I'm like 25. <laughs> That's fantastic too. <laughs> not mad about it. No, not bad. Not not at all. So in a lot of your talk, thank you for doing closing remarks or like last big speaker of the day. Uh, we were talking a lot about the importance of your self-brand and being your own champion or advocate. Can you share with our listeners that message? Of course. Of course. You know, being in the industry for so long, I've really worked in a space that's very heavily infiltrated in uh, men. And what I found being a mentor and having mentors is that self-advocacy is not something women particularly often lead with when they're often the smartest or the most capable in the room. And so in 2018, I found a piece of paper on the floor and it said, all knowledge is spendable currency depending on the market. And this resonated very deeply with me because whether that means access to a room, or it means you can create something for other people. What it really results in is the community and the society we live in today is because of a couple smart people making great investments or making great products or services that all of us benefit for. But that happens because they're a champion of themselves. And they advocated on behalf of the idea that they had, regardless of people saying no or failing or going bankrupt or falling out of funding is you need to have conviction and discipline behind the things that you do and believe that what you're advocating for is what matters to you. And that really fully resonates with your brand. Something that I mentioned at the beginning is write down who your champion is, write down a one word that describes you. And then the third is write down a word that other people would describe you as. And the interesting thing is people think that there's a bifurcation between your personal and your professional brand. And while there's different shades and flavors that you might bring... Generally speaking, you should have one kind of individual representation of who you are. And I think that's very important. And so while we are our biggest champions, we're often kind of shamed out of it or we're jaded or people tell us it's not right. You've got to remain kind of on that line and follow your conviction because if there's conviction, there's got to be capacity. And that's something Victoria said. And I totally believe in that. One of the things that came up for me as you're talking is we women especially have been socialized as cheerleaders that we're supposed to be cheering on other people. And so the whole idea of flipping that script and turning the mirror around and being a cheerleader for your own Mm -hmm. self, like why is that so hard? to learn. And then the other thing that comes up for me is like how amazing that's like the most amazing fortune cookie that you landed on in whatever room you were in. (laughs) I know. I was in New York City. I was in Washington Square Park. I had just gotten divorced. Great divorce. Very wonderful man. Just didn't work out. 
And I'm walking around with my two dogs and I find this thing on the floor, on the brick, like in the middle of the park. And I tucked it away because I was like, this is unique. Didn't think about it. I was changing that night. It fell out. And then I was like, this is, and it's literally been the basis of everything. I did my TED talk on it. My podcast was based on it. And it's something that I share with people a lot because they think their idea is a bad idea. And it's like, who told you your idea was a bad idea? Like if somebody told the guy that sold noodles in a pool that it was a bad idea, he wouldn't be a millionaire today. Every idea is something to somebody. So it's know what your your knowledge is, curate it, create an appetite and go find the market that your currency is valuable in. And it's, it's just, it's kind of simple, but it's a little deep for some people. And I'm like, you know what, if anything, be your own champion. Yeah. Well, do you have examples of that? How has have your actions shifted from learning that and taking on that mindset? Yeah. So at that time I was at, um, <laughs> I like to call it the Velvet Handcuffs, so working in a very corporate company. And I wanted to go into startup worlds. And, you know, I look at my father as somebody I really respect. And he's always like, oh, it's risky. And, and I'm a very risk tolerant person. So that doesn't bother me. But that kind of leapfrogged me into taking the leap into a space that I didn't really know that well. I've been generally in healthcare, but I moved really into a behavioral health talk space space. I'm sorry, mental health space. And it gave me almost the permission that I didn't need, by the way, because nobody needs permission. But it gave me the, I think, confidence behind the fact that if you're going to go big, go big. And I was in my early 30s and I'm like, I don't have a ton of risk. I can do this right now. And I think when you find, you kind of get that first sip of success. It's like, you're going to be fine. Well, so what was that for you? What did you, what did you go big on? Yeah. So I, I took the job with a startup company, doubled my compensation, my OTE in one year. I was able to travel internationally for this company. I was able, the results my team was able to produce on a company level was great. But I think what was the best was the networking. Yeah. The women I met that they were like, I wish I knew it you know, at my, at your age then. And I'm like, I'm going to do that. And so it was more personal growth. There was great results professionally, but it was the personal growth that I was like, I can, you could do anything you want to do. And you said that earlier, Joy, by the way, yeah. <laughs> brilliant. <laughs> well, I truly believe it. I genuinely like uh, something unlocked for me in my life when I realized I didn't need to ask permission. And that's a huge one. I'm like, who am I waiting to approve? Mm-hmm. I don't, I'm not waiting for somebody to say, yes, you can. I'm like, I know I can. I know. Watch. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and by the way, nobody's coming to save you either. That too. That is the biggest thing. Like I'm a big Mel Robbins fan. I don't know if you are. Mm-hmm. And that's the one thing she always says. She's like, nobody's coming to save you. And I'm like, that's so true. And like so many of us like live by, wh- who knows what principles these were created by somebody someday. But we're, we've all been like drinking that juice. And I'm like, stop drinking the juice. Yeah. Make your own juice. Yeah. Yeah, but I think that's a societal norm too. I mean, that comes from like the knight in shining armor conversation, right? Like someone's going to come sweep you off your feet and you're going to be taken care of and you're a princess. And it's like, guess what? No, Mm -hmm. sorry, ma'am. I know, I know. Be your own prince. Yeah. Be your own prince. Yes. You're royal. You're royal. We're all royal. (laughs) Queen. I know. (laughs) That's different. Queen of your own life. Well, thank you for sharing. Thank you. Uh, If people wanted to connect with you or follow your journey, where would they do that? Yeah. So my LinkedIn is Lauren Frederick, F-R-I-E-D-R. I-C-H, and I'm happy to engage with you. So okay. I look forward to speaking. Thank you so Thanks, much Joy. for your message. Of course. So my name is Bobby Wagner. I'm a clinical psychologist. I'm a lecturer at Harvard in the Industrial Organizational Psychology Program. I'm an author, and I spend most of my time as CEO and founder of our group uh, connection platform called Groups. All right. And you're here as an attendee of the SOAR conference. Yeah, I'm it's happy to be here. Very nice to meet you. Can you tell me about what you do? 
Yeah. So I spend most of my time, we founded uh, a tech platform. So, you know, a tech enabled uh, service where we're, we're connecting people and organizations to help them build better relationships and deepen connection um, on their teams. And how do you bring people together? Yeah. So this is my favorite part. So as a clinical psychologist, you know, I spend all this time working with people like one-on-one and I started off working, I'm kind of like privately with teams and organizations and I started teaching groups and culture and motivation at Harvard and realize, and we're teaching these corporate leaders like clinical psych skills, basically just to have good, strong relationships. And so then we're thinking like, why are we kind of training these leaders to do this when we can actually go do it for them? And the way we do this, it's just really good relationship skills, like teaching people how to like reflective listening, empathizing, validating, trying to neutralize power dynamics, making sure everyone's voice is included, and then getting very clear about the goals. Like, what do we want for our team? Teams are like families. I kind of hate that analogy, but every team is different. And it's shaped by the members in the team. So like, let's co-create the story together. What do we want this feeling, this experience to feel like? And what are we trying to achieve together? Okay, but that reminds me, like there's some people that are really eager and happy to go to therapy and other people who totally resist it. So are your clients, they must be reaching out to you because you're not going to be able to say, hey, you need therapy, right? Like, how does that work? Yeah, so we we would never... So this is really like... So we land somewhere between learning and development and team building and then kind of social wellness. So we're we're kind of in this new weird category and Esther Perel, who's one of my favorite sort of like ladies clinicians, she'll say the quality of our life is determined by the quality of our relationships. So it's really about just like good relationship skills at work. And we spend a third of our life at work, but we don't think about caring for those work relationships the same way we think about caring for our relationships with our partners or our children. But like that shapes how we feel and how we perform as a team. And, you know, just everything that's happening in our culture right now, people are leaving, they're seeking more purpose, they're seeking, seeking deeper connection. And we're not getting at work. So we're like, well, we can help with that. One of the speakers earlier today was talking about how it's, you know, hiring in particular. And it's like, you could hire five of the best performers, but if they don't work well together as a team, it doesn't really matter. Like you really need to be considering how people are compatible and interact. Like that is where the magic happens. Yeah. So that, that in psychobabble words are called cohesion and it's commitment to like each other commitment to the shared goal and then commitment to myself. And so like to deepen that and to build cohesion, there has to be trust and safety first and honest conversation. So cohesion is built over time through like ongoing conversation, but that is what like, you know, there's a great book called culture code if you're into this, but it's about sort of like themes and high performing strong cultures and it's all about like deep cohesion and how to get there. Okay. Well, if somebody wanted to work with you or find you or learn how their team could be more cohesive, where would you point them? Yeah, thank you. So our website, it's joingroups with two O's.com. So um, yeah, just reach out and you can reach out to me directly too. So my email is bobby.w at joingroups2o's.com. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks, Joy. That was fun. Yeah. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about us or this guest by going to our website or visiting us on any of the socials with the handle hit like a girl pod. Thanks again. See you soon. 
Again, thank you so much for listening to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. I am truly grateful for you, and I'm wondering if you could do me a quick favor. Would you be willing to follow or subscribe to this podcast, or maybe leave us a rating or review? Or if you're feeling extra generous, would you share this episode on your Instagram stories or with a friend? All those things help us podcasters out so much. I'm the show's host, Joy Rios, and I'll see you next time.